0: Well, I have the privilege of introducing someone that for many, many of you needs no introduction. Um, Bob Henley was senior pastor at Eastminster for nearly a decade back in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, Bob and Jane have been involved in Christian ministry leadership since 1967. He's pastored for over 30 years. Uh, He's uh, serving a special call in Florida now that I hope he will tell you about. And we're just delighted, Bob, that you have come back. I have to tell you, Bob's been, I've had a couple of opportunities now to meet with Bob, and he's been very gracious in his time with me. And it's just a a unique individual, deep theologically, uh, very knowledgeable, but very encouraging too, to me in ministry. And I told him I'd I'd like to just take a computer cord and plug into you and download all of that into my own heart and mind. Uh, You're really in for a treat today. So Bob, thank you for all of the time that you've given. Reverend Bob Henley. Thank you, Mike. Very much.
1: Well, it's great to be back in a place that we love, and wonderful look in the faces of a lot of friends. I'll warn you in advance, the facial recognition software works. The name recall, not so much. (laughs) Great to hear the choir this morning. Thank you. Uh, uh, We came here in 1993. When we did, we were in our mid-40s, you can do the math, Uh, and we had three, still have three children. Uh, One was in high school here, two were in college. Uh, We now have been married over 53 years. We have seven grandchildren. Our oldest will be a freshman at the University of Utah this fall. And seeing uh, my wife sitting next to Barbara Murphy down here, I've got to tell a story of what happened back in the day. Uh, I'm serving now as the chaplain in residence at the Ocean Reef Club in Key Largo, Florida. It's tough duty, but somebody's got to do it. And, and, and being the pastor of the Ocean Reef Club, it's no different than being a pastor anywhere, except your congregation covers the, West, the two-thirds of the United States. So in the summers, I spend a lot of times on planes as Jane and I go and uh, visit uh, dear friends around the country. Uh, but this past, uh, we were just a few days ago in Detroit doing a memorial service for a dear friend, before we before we came down to Wichita. So the story, we're at Ocean Reef because of Barbara and Mike Murphy, dear beloved Mike. And um, so the story was this, I was preaching my candidating sermon, and Jane was sitting right back here, and what Barbara didn't know, she was sitting next to Jane. And as I was being presented by somebody, Barbara, whose vision was distorted, still is probably, said, he's pretty good looking. I think I'll vote for him. (laughs) So when I came into the pulpit, I said, thank you, and I'd like my wife Jane to stand sitting next to Barbara. (laughs) We're so grateful for Barbara. For Barb and for Mike and the privilege of uh, continuing our friendship and fellowship and service together with them. And again, such a privilege to be back with you this morning. I want to speak this morning about resilient living in troubled times. Resilient living in troubled times. Our scripture... I'm going to read three of them. The first comes from the 16th chapter of Sam. <laughs> Carol just saw you guys down there. The name recall did come back there. comes from the 15th chapter of, uh, 16th chapter of John's Gospel. Let's, let's read that scripture first. Uh, this is the end of the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus says, no, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. The time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world, read these next words with me please. You will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Then these words from the 15th chapter of the book of Romans, Paul writes and he says, Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then these words from the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show how this all-surpassing power is from God, and not from us. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe, and therefore speak. Because we know that the One who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus, and present us with you to Himself. All of this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, say it with me, we do not lose, read it again, therefore, we do not lose heart. I want to invite you to pray a prayer with me. It was actually a children's poem, but you and I learned it from the musical Godspell. And the words go like this, Lord, help us see you more clearly in order that we may love you more dearly and follow you more nearly day by day. Will you join me as we pray that together? Lord, help us see you more clearly in order that we may love you more dearly and follow you more nearly to the honor and glory and praise of your great name. And we all say, Amen. I want to hang our thinking this morning around three words. The first word is the word clarity. The second word is the word conviction. And then the third word is the word confidence. Clarity, conviction, and confidence. But before we dig into those words, I want to begin by talking a little bit about the troubled world that we live in. A few weeks ago, there was an email in my inbox, and this was the title. We live in an era of emergency. And here's what I read. Since 2008, we've seen a global financial crisis a sovereign debt crisis in Europe, and a wave of unrest that sparked political turmoil across North Africa and the Middle East. Civil wars in Syria and Libya helped trigger a migrant crisis that upended European politics. Then came Britain's exit from the EU, the surprise election of a U.S. president who upended the most basic assumptions of how, about America's role in the post-war world and the political crisis in the wake of his defeat. Next came a global pandemic that has killed millions and continues to inflict human, economic, and political damage in every region of our world. And now we have Russia's war on Ukraine, millions more refugees, and a global food emergency that has only just begun. And all of that has happened in the past 14 years. Now you add to that the emerging energy crisis, the return of inflation, and the overturn of Roe v. Wade. We live in an era of emergency. That last thing has hit Jane and I and all of us who live at Ocean Reef very personally because Associate Justice Kavanaugh's parents, Martha and Ed, are dear friends. And we have watched all that they have been through in the past several years. Uh, Many of us who are older, there's a few of you up here too. Many of us who are older, who were born either during or after World War II, we have come to expect a certain predictability from our world. Well, that predictability has been upended, has it not? And most of us, at some point in time in our lives, I hope, you've had the experience of standing in the sand in the shallow water of the ocean. How many of you have done that? All right, all of you have. You remember what happens as you're standing there, the waves slowly erode the sand under your feet, right? And what you start to feel is you start to feel a little bit unsteady. Well, I think that image is a wonderful metaphor to describe how many of us feel today. Uh, What's happened is that when we were younger, there was a synthesis between religious faith and our culture. Back in the day, religious values were part and parcel of the dominant culture. And they directly and indirectly shaped and influenced every area of our lives. When I was a kid growing up in a small town in North Texas, our school experience began every day, maybe like some of yours. The Bible reading, prayer, and the Pledge to the Allegiance. Try and find a public school today where that's happening. The question in that era was not whether church was part of your life. The question was, which church are you part of? It was simply assumed. And there was some shared humor as well about our denominational distinctives. You remember? Methodists are just Baptists who learned to read. <laughs> Presbyterians were Methodists who bought stock. And Episcopalians were Presbyterians who bought the company. Well, as you and I look back, we can we can see how the how those values have slowly been eroded as the cultural synthesis gained speed through the years. And now today, it's undermined pretty much everything that you and I took for granted those years ago. We're now living in an era of emergency. And it is sobering to realize that that is the only world these third graders know and it's the only world our grandchildren know how many of you've tried to have a conversation with your grandkids lately about some of these things you have to bite your tongue and just open your ears and smile don't you but it's such a privilege to say lord how do how do we have influence in, in this world today, particularly in our families. Now, some people respond to what's happening by, by, by throwing up their hands in despair. They just kind of cry out in protest and they seem helpless and overwhelmed. Uh, a young man came up to me at the end of the eight o'clock service and I really appreciated what he said to me. He said, Bob, sometimes the conservative church has added to the anxiety that's in the world because what we've done, we've stood outside and we've just criticized it. We've thrown hand grenades grenades into it. Sobering thought. The uh, others suggest that what we really need to do is invest great energy and resource in raising penultimate concerns to the level of ultimacy. In other words, we need to invest more in politics. Well, you know and I know that politics cannot fix what's broken in our world today. Here's the question, where's God in all of this? Where's God? Does His Word have something to offer us that can give us a firm place to stand in these troubled, anxious times? And the question I want to pose this morning is how do people of faith live with resilience in troubled times? Our time is, times are characterized by anxiety. The word for our time, I think, is resilience. How many of you have listened to Brene Brown's pod, her TED Talk uh, on resilience? Well, you are just a few of the almost two-plus million people who've listened to it because she's speaking to the time and our age. Uh, Resilience is is the word that I think the church needs to hear today. A friend of mine, Todd Bolsinger, Todd has written a book called Canoeing the Mountains. Do you know more pastors are leaving the ministry uh, today than at any time in, in my lifetime? Do you know why? Because the predictability of what it used to mean to lead a church is no more and Todd's image of canoeing the mountains from Lewis and Clark, we're journeying off the map. And sometimes the congregations are filled with anxiety. We need to wrestle with the question, how do we find resilience? Well, I I think the Scriptures have much to teach us, and I like to define resilience biblically this way. It is not losing heart. Not losing heart. So to three words, clarity. I think the first thing that we need is clarity about ourselves and then clarity about the world in which we are living. Uh, We need clarity, first of all, to say that a person of faith is neither a sappy optimist nor a gloomy pessimist. People of faith should be sober-eyed realists about ourselves and about the world. And I I love that kind of realism that we find in the Scriptures, throughout the Scriptures. How many of you, the cleanest pages in your Bible, are the first two-thirds of the book? Show of hands, right? How many of you have set off to read the Bible a hundred times and then you hit the book of Leviticus? You know, And you just said, help, Lord, get me through this. When we're talking about the Scriptures, when Paul talked about the Scriptures, he did not have a version of the New Testament to talk about. What was he talking about? The Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures... And what we need to understand is God's story begins in creation and it goes all the way through to consummation. And when Paul is talking about drawing encouragement from the Scriptures, he's not just talking about the Gospels or the letters, he's talking about what? The whole book. And part of the reason we're not resilient is we don't know God's story in the whole book. So Jesus, in his, on the, the night of, of his betrayal, John, in the 13th through the 16th chapters, this high, this, this upper room discourse, he's telling us about all that took place between Jesus and the disciples on that climactic evening. And he recalls everything Jesus tried to tell the disciples. And I believe the disciples give us a window of clarity about ourselves. John does not hide the fact that they don't understand. That should make all of us feel really good. Some of Jesus' last words to them, as we heard, I came from the Father, and I entered the world. Now I am leaving the world, and I'm going back to the Father. From their response, it would appear that it had suddenly dawned on them what Jesus was trying to say to them all along. Kind of a holy aha moment. They replied, oh, now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. I like what one commentator says correctly. He says there is a hint of sarcasm in Jesus' response to the disciples. Did they think that somehow this sudden burst of insight has prepared them to cope with what they're going to face later that evening in the garden? Jesus seems to be telling them that when trouble comes in just a few hours, don't you think for a minute that that burst of insight that you're claiming is going to be enough to enable you to stand up to the pressures that you're going to face. Here's how Eugene Peterson's in The Message puts it. Jesus answered them, Oh, do you finally believe? In fact, you're about to make a run for it to save your own skins and abandon me, but I'm not abandoned. The Father is with me. I think what Jesus is doing in this moment, He is clearly not going to allow the disciples the dangerous assumptions of self-confidence. They don't yet understand the weakness of Of their humanity with clarity and Jesus was clear about the forces of sin and death and hell that he was going to confront for us in the garden and on the cross and he knew that his closest friends were going to abandon him he saw that clearly and knowing that they were going to abandon him he still promised them the gift of peace he promised them the gift of peace before they failed because He knows that they, like us, are embarrassed when we miss the mark, which we all do. Would you turn to the person next to you and said He was talking about you then? We need to remember that. Friends, he promised them peace before they failed. Wow. He knows that they, like us, are embarrassed. He knew the shame that they would experience when they turned their back on him. And perhaps they thought because they turned their back on him, God would turn his back on them. That's why he promised them the gift of peace before they failed. And do you remember that scene when he's risen? They're in a room, the doors are all locked because of their fear of their, of their fellow Jews, and Jesus suddenly appears in the midst of them. They don't know how he got there. They think they're seeing a ghost. What's his first word to them? Peace. His last word before they failed, and his first word after their failure. Peace. How do you and I measure the value of the gift of God's peace? Peace. Knowing that the certainty of our faith does not rest in ourselves and in our own strength. It is the peace, as the Apostle Paul said, that passes all understanding. Say that with me, would you please? Peace that passes all... Don't forget how that passage begins. It begins this way. Be anxious for nothing but in everything with, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request, your needs, be made known unto God, and then what? The peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that is promised to us goes far beyond any human calculus. It is the peace of God that comes from God. It is the gift of God that comes to us through Jesus the Son by the agency of God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus offers each of us peace in our troubled world. And there is no peace to be found apart from Christ. Jesus also gives us clarity about what to expect as we live in the world. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. It says, here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Aren't you glad for that promise of Jesus? You're going to have what? Many what? Trials. Many what? Many sorrows. It's not going to be that predictable life that we grew up in that was an anomaly in all of history and what Jesus says next, on the face of it, seems to me facile and simplistic, but it is far from it. Here's what he says. This is kind of a, of a translation. Cheer up, boys. Take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. I love the way the, mas- the message captures this. Jesus says, I've told you all this so that trusting me, you will be unshakable, assured, deeply at peace. Dear friends, this morning, that is a promise of resilient life to those who will place their trust in Him in the middle of our anxiety-ridden, troubled world. It is the gift of unshakable, assured, deep peace. But we need to be clear about what is not promised. There is no guarantee that the troubling circumstances that we face are going to disappear. What is promised is the trustworthiness of Jesus in the midst of it all. I believe what it is describing is a resilient life, Grounded in the strength that Christ gives in the midst of our troubling world as we live moment by moment putting our trust in Him. And this conviction, this hope, it's like a seed that gets planted in our hearts. It's got to be nurtured so that the seed does not turn out to be like that seed of Jesus' parable, the seed that was planted in shallow soil. You remember what happened? The trouble came, the heat of life turned up, and what happened to the roots, the seed? It withered because it had not been nurtured. And I believe that is what is happening to so many people's lives because we are not being nurtured in the fullness of God's story throughout all of Scripture. The Bible says that you and I can find through everything that has been written in the Scriptures, we've been, we can find that which we need to teach us how to live in a time like this. It teaches us that through endurance and resilience taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. When we were in Israel back in June, we went to Mount Carmel. You know what you find on top of Mount Carmel? You find a statue of of Elijah. He's got a sword in his hand. Anybody want to sign up to be up on Mount Carmel with Elijah? Anybody want to sign up to, to, to be one of the prophets in the Old Testament? You want to live that life? Anybody want to sign up to be a faithful Jew in the exile? Uh, Anybody want to sign up to be a faithful Jew when the Romans are coming and they're destroying Jerusalem? They're burning everything to the ground. They're taking you into exile. Was God God in the midst of that story? Can we learn from how to live with resilient lives from that part of the Scriptures? Yes, but too often we ignore them altogether. You can make no sense of Jesus if you remove him from his Jewish culture. If you don't understand him in his Jewish culture, he is just cut flowers. When you place him in that Jewish culture, we understand him to be the Messiah, not only of Israel, but the hope of the whole world. And you can't understand him to be that apart from that context. We've got to know the whole story our life is nurtured our conviction becomes confidence in God that sustains our lives so here's the question what is God doing this morning anybody I'll tell you one thing he's not doing he's not sitting in heaven wringing his hands can I get an amen even in a Presbyterian church on Sunday morning many of us anxiety-ridden, wringing our hands here on earth. God is not. God's heart breaks for our indifference. God's heart breaks for our rebellion and the suffering that we experience as a consequence. But friends, it is hope that calls us to faithful witness and listen to these next two words constructive engagement in the world not standing on the side criticizing and judging and lobbying as this young man said hand grenades into the people but having faithful witness and constructive engagement what is God up to God is sovereignly and providentially at work in our lives and in God's world, and He is bringing His plans and His purposes to fulfillment in the midst of our troubled world. Mike, thank you for what you prayed this morning and for your hospitality. Friends, the end is that people are going to come from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. They are going to bring the glory and honor of their cultures as it is redeemed, and they are going to bring it into the New Jerusalem where we are going to live forever in the presence of our great God. And life is going to be beyond our imagining in that day. That's the hope that sustains our lives. Here's one last source of confidence. You ready? And then I'm gonna quit. You'll be glad. Jesus is praying for you. Would you say this with me? Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for me. You've never said anything more true. But I want you to listen to what he's praying from John's Gospel. He is not praying that the Father will take you out of the troubled world. What he is praying is that you and I will be protected from the evil one in the troubled world. He is praying that our lives may be so set apart in the truth of God's Word that as the Father sent him into the world, he is now sending, you ready? You and me. Wow. You and I are God's answer to the troubled world by the lives we live in the world with resilient hope. Let me close with this. God wants to give us as his people in Christ, the power, the ability to live resilient lives, not losing heart. Nurtured by his word and empowered by his spirit, may we live lives full of hope, clarity, certainty, and confidence to his glory and the blessing of our troubled world That God loves and sent Christ to save and has sent you and me in to be his servants. Amen. Amen. Lord, take away the anxiety. May we turn to you full of confidence and faith and hope with thanksgiving. And may we experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. And may we respond to the call of God by living as your people who bring you glory and honor as your son did. In Jesus' name, we all say, Amen.